Good morning. How is everybody today? Oh, that's good. <laughs> I want to start by asking what God is doing in your life. And if you've never been baptized, if you've never followed in obedience to the Savior and said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get dunked. Um, we're doing that in a couple of weeks on, uh, I don't know what the date is actually. There it is, the 21st. Uh, and if you're interested in that, check it on the Connect. If God's leading and you've never, you just, you just love Him and you're prompted by His love and, and obedience to Him and would like to do that, we need, we'd like to chat. And uh, so let us know about that. We have an opportunity uh, for water baptism in a couple of weeks here. Well, the Bible's a huge book, is it not? There's so much truth, so many characters page after page after page, verse after verse, and each one of them is important, every one of them. And we've been considering some of the more invisibles who have encountered God throughout this story of the Bible. Sometimes these hidden gems can speak with some conviction to our lives. And so this morning, that's our goal, and we're back in the Old Testament today. If you want to preview a little bit, go to 2 Samuel chapter 15. We'll be there in a couple of minutes. But I want you to imagine this as you're turning there. God and Satan are picking sides for, for the, each for their own dodgeball team. God gives Satan the first pick. He picks a strong, fast teenager. God picks a slightly overweight kindergartner. Satan picks a beefy guy who looks like he played college football. God for a game of dodgeball, picks, picks a blind guy. Satan picks a soccer star. God picks a girl in a wheelchair. And on and on it goes until the teams are finished. God's team is kind of blind and crippled and slow and small, and if you're honest about it, pretty hopeless. Satan's team is strong and sleek. No worries whatsoever, except for one tiny detail. God's team is God's team. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Ittai the Gittite? Before Friday, before you saw your update, have you ever heard of him? Ittai chooses to be on the losing team in dodgeball precisely because it is God's team. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We know even less about Ittai than we knew about Andrew, the disciple, not the youth pastor, last Sunday morning. So we're going to need a bit of background to understand who he does it and what's his contribution to the text. So King David's son, Absalom, is rallying support and kind of stealing, not kind of, he is stealing the control of the kingdom away from his father, David. And for four years, he went to the city gate every day to settle the disputes that people were having amongst each other and to undermine his father's authority. He would shake hands. He would kiss babies. He'd make promises. He'd trash talk his father. He planted seeds of, you know, if I were only king. And the people loved him. And they loved what he was doing, both for his help that he was giving them and for his good looks. 
and his long flowing hair. 2 Samuel 14, verse 25 says this, In all Israel there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. He is the consummate politician, handsome and compassionate. But there's also this about him. He's treacherous. And so he gathers his supporters together in Hebron, down south of Jerusalem, and he plots to overthrow dear old dad. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 13 is where the story begins. A messenger came and told David, The hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will, be, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put, us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answer him, your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. we got to run, David says. Verse 16, the king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at the edge of the city. And all his men marched past him, along with the Carathites and the Pelathites, and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. So now we are ready to meet our invisible Ittai, the Gittite. His first mention in the text ever, verse 19. The king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and today shall, shall I make you wander with, uh, about with us when I do not know where I'm going? Go back. Take your people with you. May God show you kindness and faithfulness. Verse 21, but Ittai replied to the king, as surely as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king may be, wherever it means life, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. That's it. Well, he comes up again in chapter 18, but basically that's it. This brief incident forces me to ask two questions, which I want to explore this morning. And I think the answer to those questions will teach us something about life. The two questions are these. Why does David tell Ittai to go back home? And second, why won't Ittai go back home? Good questions. I thought they were good questions. Number one, why does David tell Ittai to go back home? Well, the simple answer seems to be that at this point in his life and in his reign, David seems to have lost all hope. His son is running him out of Jerusalem. He is ending David's reign as king. And David sees nothing but suffering for himself in the days ahead and for anybody who follows him. And he wants to spare this new kid the hardship and the possible death that's on the horizon. So there's no other option. So he basically says, God bless you, Ittai. Go, go back to safety. Absalom, you're so new. He has no reason to harm you. Be safe. 
But I want to know, why has David lost hope? The anointed one. How did he get here? The story of David is a bit of a soap opera, is it not? I think there are parts we need to understand to make this moment make sense. So let's dig into a little bit. The story of David is a rags-to-riches story. He starts life caring for his father's sheep out in the Bethlehem countryside. But not everything that happens to David along this journey is pleasant, nor is it good. And his story is no fairy tale. He does make that journey from tending sheep to ruling the nation. And even though the Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart, he wasn't always good. And he didn't always reflect the holiness of God in the choices that he made. So the Cliff Notes version of what's brought David to this point, watching his parade of followers march probably up the Mount of Olives and over the top into the, into the Jerusalem, into the Judean wilderness, begins decades before this moment. In one of the seasons in which the king goes out to battle, David sent his armies out to battle. But he stays behind in Jerusalem for, for some curious reason. He spends the evenings, while he's kind of in town alone, watching a woman bathe down below his palace. He summons this woman, Bathsheba, to come to his palace. And let's be honest, you don't say no to the king. And so she comes. And once in his palace, on his home turf, he seduces her, and she gets pregnant. Well, now what? She's a married woman. She's married to one of his, his army officers. And now what are we going to do? So David has them send her husband back, Uriah the Hittite, and go sleep with your wife, and then maybe we can cover this all up. But Uriah is lo loyal to his troops. I'm not going to do that. They're not at home with their wives, so I won't be either. So plan... Plan A doesn't work. Let's go to plan B. Plan B is ship him back out to the front and make sure he dies in a battle. And that's what happened. On purpose, David has him killed. And that ought to cover up David's sin. No one needs to know. He didn't, Uriah didn't sleep with Bathsheba. No one needs to know David did this. And no one does. It worked. Hmm. But God knew. And eventually, Nathan the prophet comes and confronts David with his sin. And though he repents from that sin, he learns from God that there are consequences for sin, even if you're the king. 2 Samuel 12, verse 10 says this, Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Because of that sin, God told David that the sword, drama and death, basically, would never depart from his house, and it never did. David had multiple wives and lots of children, hence the drama. And David had a son named Absalom, the one we just read about living down in Hebron when our story began. So let's jump back in time just a little bit. Absalom had a sister named Tamar. 
She was absolutely stunning, like her brother. They had a half-brother, Amnon. Same father, David, different mothers. And this is kind of where it gets a little interesting. Amnon lusts after Tamar. He is head over heels in love with his half-sister. And he wept big time because he couldn't have her. And he wept so much, he kind of got physically sick and didn't know what to do. Unfortunately for Amnon, he doesn't surround himself with good counselors, wise people. He has a cousin um, whose name was Jonadab and gave him some bad advice. He says, you know, you're acting kind of sick. Why don't you just say you're sick? And then you talk to your dad and tell your dad to send Tamar to come and take care of you. Well, that's not a bad idea. David wasn't so sure, but he, he acquiesces. And so she bakes for him. And then he makes the request, well, you got to serve it to me because I'm that sick. Come in. And she does. And as soon as she comes in, or when she's in there, he rapes her. And she flees in shame. His reaction, now he hates her. His hatred for her, the scripture says, is stronger than the love that he felt to her when all of this began. And Tamar does what? She goes and finds refuge with her brother, Absalom. This brilliant politician, this handsome man. He is now angry, bitter, and very patient, which is a deadly set of circumstances, at least for Amnon. For two years, Absalom plots against his half-brother. Two years. Eventually, he invites all his brothers to his house for a nice soiree. They're expecting a nice evening. And when he gets there, he has it all set up, and he has Amnon murdered. Now what? Well, David's not a happy dad. And so Absalom runs away to his, his grandfather, up in Gesher, the Sea of Galilee area. And after David finds consolation for the death of Amnon, he begins to think, you know, I kind of miss Absalom too. What am I going to do? But he, he will never go up there and make right the relationship with Absalom. And so finally, Joab, the general, orchestrates events so that David agrees, just at least let Absalom come home. And so he comes back down to where David is, but David will never meet him face to face. He refuses to see him. So Absalom decides, well, I'm just going to go down to Hebron. I'll set up my little whatever, and David can be in Jerusalem. And out of anger and greed, Absalom plots against his father for years and years and years. He uses his charm, he uses his good looks, and he steals the heart of the people. And eventually he will steal the throne, which is what 2 Samuel 15 is all about. And when David hears that, you know, Absalom's ready and he's declared himself king, David's like, well, we're not prepared for this. I, I can't go into battle with him now. So let's run. I'll leave my few concubines to take care of the palace and let's go. And as they're leaving the city, probably on the Mount of Olives somewhere, maybe near the top, and he watches his family and his soldiers who've been loyal with him for years cross the Kidron Valley and come up the side of the hill and his entourage walks before him. It's a, it's a heartbreaking sight. Some of these people had been with him since the days he was being chased by Saul in the wilderness. 
And here they are once again, escaping for their lives. Verse 16, let's read it again. The king set out with his entire household following him. He left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people, and they halted at the edge of the city. And all his men marched past him. David is paying once again the price for his sin with Bathsheba. Absalom is about to rule from David's throne in Jerusalem. And as David's standing there watching everybody walk by, the text says, the king says to Ittai the Gittite, why should you come along with us? Just go back. Stay with Absalom. Why does David tell Ittai to, to go back home? Because David says, there's nothing but trouble ahead for me. I'm outnumbered. I'm probably going to lose the war that's on the horizon. And David is running again, this time not from Saul, but from his own son. And David looks around, and he sees his dodgeball team, chosen by God, and it wasn't a pretty sight. But Ittai replied to the king in verse 21, As surely as the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. Ittai chooses his spot on the dodgeball team. And he chooses the loser. Because regardless of the outcome, it's still God's team. And his choice is stunning. Which leads me to ask this quest, next question. Why won't Ittai go back home? Why not save yourself? You've got 600 people in the family. Why not just go back and be secure? Why would he make such a choice? Why would he pledge faithfulness to this loser king who's on the run? I mean, where's he from anyway? He is Ittai the Gittite. Which means he came from where? He came from Gath. 20 bonus points if you can name another famous face from Gath. The really big guy. 1 Samuel 17, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was really big, and it goes on. See, itty-bitty David killed great big Goliath, the greatest warrior Gath had ever produced. Maybe Ittai had heard the stories. If he's old enough, maybe he was there. But it doesn't matter if he was there or not. Ittai knew that God had been with David ever since the days of his youth. And the boy who killed a giant is now in a tough spot. But Ittai knew better than anyone else that any situation with David plus God was not hopeless. And it would be foolishness to join a different team at this point, even though the circumstances looked pretty bad. And his loyalty in such a situation was totally unexpected. David had given him a legitimate way out. It's okay. You can go. And he says, but as surely as the Lord lives, wherever you go, I'm going to go. It's a pledge of life and death loyalty. And what makes this pledge of faithfulness all the more amazing are four things we really do know about Ittai the Gittite. Here they are. Number one, he freely chose 
the side of his master. Nobody forced him to do this. It could mean his own death, and David told him that. Second, he's not even an Israelite. He's a Philistine. He's from Gath. Third, he's only been with David a short time, maybe even a day. I don't know. It's not very long. There's no lifelong bond. He hadn't wandered with David out with running from Saul and all of that. And fourth, he's a mercenary. He's a paid soldier. He got a job in Jerusalem. That's where the job was, and he went. I mean, you might expect the kind of loyalty that Ittai displays from a son or a trusted aide or a longtime friend, but he was none of those things. What was it about this man that would risk his life for King David? Is it integrity? Is it loyalty? What is it? Had he sworn some oath? But David had just released him from that, if he had. Was he, he just always sided with the underdog? I think the real clue to his loyalty is found in his reference to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at verse 21 again. But Ittai replied to the king, as surely as the Lord lives. Yahweh. He uses the personal name for God, the Hebrew God. It appears as though God's first in his life. And he believes that David is the God-ordained king, monarch of Israel. Therefore, I will be true to him no matter what. It's out of his knowledge and his commitment to God that he decides his fate. He shows up one more time in 2 Samuel 18. By then, David has had some time to gather his troops and, and mount his own defense and organize this counteroffensive against Absalom. By this point, David has discovered he's got a lot more friends than he thought he did. And Ittai has been rewarded for his loyalty. Ittai is given command over one-third of the army of David. 2 Samuel 18, verse 2, David sent out his troops, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeru Zeruiah, and a third under Ittai the Gittite, a foreigner. A Philistine. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march with you. They talk him out of that. Verse 5, the king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard, that the, king give, they heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom, Absalom to each of the commanders. David gives him a little pet puck. This is it. We're going to go out. We're going to fight. Please, just don't hurt Absalom. How does it end? Not really important to where we're going this morning, but you might want to know. Behind the scenes, there's a guy named Hushai who infiltrates Absalom's royal court in Jerusalem and tells David all their plans, what they're going to do. And so it turns out it was the battle's portrayed. They know where it's coming. They go out there, and as history unfolds, Joab, the general, the, one of the commander of, of a third of the forces, actually encounters Absalom. And Absalom tries to run and flee, and you know, you probably know the story, he, all that hair, they say he cut it once a year, this must have been close to the time of that cutting, because his hair gets caught in the oak tree, we have an oak tree out there, you can see how that would be bad, and he gets in there and he's, his, his horse runs or his donkey runs away, and he's just hanging from the tree, and Job says, why didn't somebody do something, and he gets him with three spears, he says, 
you, and then you go tell David what happened. But that's another story. David learns that sin may be forgiven, but you will still reap the inevitable consequences. David lost his sons. There's fighting and infighting in his kingdom. But David does return to Jerusalem. He is the king. Happiness ensues. Well, for a little while anyway. So, what are the lessons we can learn from Ittai the Gittite? I've learned two things that I want to apply to our lives today. Number one is the importance of courage in our lives and in our faith. See, if you're going to live as a Christian, an actual follower of Christ, it's going to be a difficult road that you choose to walk. You might be misunderstood. You're probably never going to be in the majority. You might have to stand all alone. It is going to take some courage to be on the side of the king. And it's going to take some courage to stand for kingdom values. It doesn't take courage to know the right thing. What takes courage is to do the right thing. And we need people who are willing to stand with courage and conviction. And sometimes we're going to have to stand together. The Bible is filled with men and women of courage. Paul, he's in prisons. He gets shipwrecked. He's beaten. He's stoned because he's going to stand for Christ. John the Baptist had to stand before Herod the Tetrarch and say, you know, Herod, you're living in sin. You're living with your brother's wife. And that had to take guts to say that to the Tetrarch, to the king at the time. Moses had to stand before Pharaoh. And Moses had to speak on behalf of the one true God with all of the might and the glory and the splendor, which was Egypt. Elijah stood on Mount Carmel. We just kind of take it for granted. There's 450 prophets of Baal there. He had to stand in opposition to them. See, it takes courage to stand with our king when other people won't do that. It takes courage to stand when things are hard, when things don't go in our lives as we've planned them to go. And courage means we're willing to work and serve even if it's hard and costly. The majority stood with Absalom, not with David. And David told Ittai to return, go back. But he stood with the one who was the true king of Israel. And he most certainly seems to know the God of Israel. And there was no going back. I'm not going back to the Philistines and their pagan deities when I know the God of the Bible. He looked at the dodgeball team chosen by Absalom. He looked at the dodgeball team chosen by David. And in light of what could be seen, it took courage and a willingness to sacrifice to stand with God and David's team. He was courageous. It takes courage to face a challenging culture. Second thing I learned from him is the importance of loyalty. Loyalty. We saw a little bit of it in Uriah the Hittite. We see it in spades in Ittai the Gittite. So we have to ask, what does it mean to be loyal to Jesus? I think we should let Ittai answer that question from his perspective. 
I think Ittai would tell us four things. Number one, to be loyal to Jesus means that I have to recognize the king when he's not wearing his crown. Ittai knew who he was. He was the, the rightly anointed king of Israel, anointed by Yahweh. And even as he trudged up the Mount of Olives, he knew David was God's anointed. One of the two thieves on the cross knew who Jesus was, as did one of the Roman soldiers, but not very many. There was no crown on that day, except for the crown of thorns. And as far as much of the world is concerned, Jesus was not the king back then. Of course, that's all changed today, right? Yeah, right. He's still not the king in the eyes of the world. But we are called to believe something entirely different. Paul puts it this way. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ittai says, if we're going to be loyal to Jesus, we must recognize him as our king in these days when we see no crown. Second thing he tells us, to be loyal to Jesus means serving a king without a country. Satan's called the prince of the world. He's a usurper. He's a liar. But our king, he's still coming. He is still coming. Third, to be loyal to Jesus means following a king whose supporters are few. We are, we are just part of a remnant, a few. Compared to the population of Jerusalem, not many followed David into the wilderness for safety. And there are times we will have to walk a lonely path because we're following the king. You may have heard the story of a pastor who was told by his boss you know, you're not doing a very good job. You know, you've only had one decision for Christ this year. You better fix that. Later that day, the pastor was praying and somebody walked up behind him. It was his one conversion. It was a kid, too, and the, the boss knew it. It's like, it's just a kid. Turning around, he saw that boy, and the boy said, Pastor, do you think I could become a preacher or a missionary someday? Well, let's talk about it. Let's pray about it. Let's see how God moves. The kid's name was Robert Moffat. He would open Africa to the gospel. Years later, he would speak at a big rally in London, and there would be a doctor there who would hear the challenge spoken that day when Moffat said, I've seen in the morning sun the smoke of a thousand villages where no missionary has ever been. And that doctor heard that message. It was David Livingstone. And in 1840, he sailed to Africa where he served Christ for 30 years. Why? <laughs> All stems back to a pastor who they didn't think was doing a very good job, who led one kid to Christ in that year. All across the world, there are people in churches that you will find to be faithful people of God, doing what they can for the Savior. They don't get a lot of attention. They're just doing their job. They're teaching Sunday school week after week. Or they're ushering or they're greeting or they're 
changing diapers in the nursery or the cooking. They are loyal to the king when no one is watching. They are loyal to the king when no one's cheering them on. But just as Ittai got rewarded, so will they. Fourth, to be loyal to Jesus means following a king without conditions, whether by life or by death. Would you be willing to follow Jesus into the wilderness? Are you willing to follow Jesus and be uncomfortable? We are a people these days of convenience. And when things go wrong, our first response is to get mad at God. And we fuss and we fume. And some people, a lot of people, just walk away from him. Then the question to ask is, who's your king then? Who is your king? There's one question which lingers in my mind this week. In the midst of all this talk about courage and loyalty, I have one more question. Think about this. Where are all the Gittites today? Where are they? Where are those believers who will stay with the Lord Jesus Christ and his church no matter what? Where's our courage? Where's our loyalty? Where's our sense of commitment and integrity among the people of God? Engraved on an ancient slab in a cathedral in Germany, are the words which force me to consider my own loyalty and my own courage. They make me answer the question, am I a Gittite? They say this, you call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me the way and walk me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. I'm going to close with the Welsh National Anthem. Number one, I didn't know such a thing existed. But it was actually sung at the wedding and the funeral of Princess Diana. The lyrics acknowledge and they begin in the first stanza talking about country. But they provide, I think, a rich vocabulary for us to think about what it means to give ourselves to God and to his kingdom. And then it'll come around to that very thing. They say this, I vow to thee, my country, all earthly things above, entire and whole and perfect, the service of my love. The love that asks no questions, that stands the test of time. Oh, the love that stands the test, sorry. That lays upon the altar the dearest and the best the love that never falters, the love that pays the price, 
the love that makes undaunted the final sacrifice. That's loyalty. And then he says, or the hymn says, there is another country I've heard of long ago, most dear to them who love her, most great to them that know. We may not count her armies. We may not see her king. Her fortress is a faithful heart. Her pride is suffering. And soul by soul and silently, her shining bounds increase. And all her ways, and her ways are ways of gentleness. And all her paths are peace. Wow. Where are all the Gittites? Will you be one? Courageous, loyal to the king. May God help us to sign up for the Ittai Club. To look at which team of dodgeball we're really playing for. And demonstrate courage and loyalty to God and to God alone. Let's pray. Father, it is a challenge for us. We face so many distractions and we, we look around. We don't see your crown and we don't see your kingdom. But we want to be like Ittai, the Gittite, and choose what we know to be true. That we might follow you into the wilderness if necessary, into death if necessary, but full of grace and hope and peace that you might find in us a courageous and loyal servant. In Jesus' name, amen.